January 13, 1975. Courtesy 
the sales department. Yeah. It's spring, of course, and they're passing around hemlock here. You know how it is, the sap. Yeah. Who's the sap? Well, that's the sales manager. Uh, would you... <laughs> Please, one, two, three, four, bang, strike, hit it now. You know, he's a good American turtle. And uh, he, he was green. 
and he had these two black eyes with a yellow spot in the middle. And uh, Clarence, <laughs> Clarence would talk to me every day, and he would tell me, you know, what he did the day before. That was his whole uh, whole thing. So I'd say, well, what did you do yesterday, Clarence, after I left you? And uh, Clarence would say, uh, well, he had this, this quick little voice. Now, wow, uh, wow, I watch television. And I says, well, you watch television. Did you see anything good there? No. I'd say, now, come on, Clarence. I mean, you do not bite the hand that feeds you. And uh, then there'd be a long pregnant pause, and he'd reach over and bite me. Well, that, that was the opening gag often. The kids loved it. You know, kids loved the same opening gag all the time. Clarence biting the hand that fed him. Now, uh, we had the only talking giraffe. You know, giraffes don't talk. You know that. That's a silent animal. And it was uh, kind of startling to hear a giraffe uh, spoke in a low, feminine voice. It was a sexy giraffe. And apparently the giraffe and the turtle were having some kind of a thing. This was what, the, you know, they built an inner plot there, which would have produced one hell of a strange case of, uh, what do they call it, miscognition? Uh, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the, the never-never land that uh, the kid people work in begins to affect them. And uh, I got so that uh, I uh, the, this, this turtle was a real character to me. And I just really... I got so I knew him. And I also, by the way, got so I didn't like him very well. Uh, you, you can get to hate your, your character. And uh, I talked to this turtle, and then I, then I tried to cut him out. You know, the turtle insists. The terrible the steam, scene stealer. You know, like the cookie monster and all that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I just wonder how many kids uh, who are growing up at this point, uh, you know, they're little kids now. Maybe they're four or five or three or something like that. How many of them, like, say, uh, 40 years from now, they're going to be lying on a couch there somewhere, see? And uh, they, their whole life is uh, going, you know, cuckoo bird, and uh, they can't figure out why. See, the guy's all of a sudden, he's gained 700 pounds because he, he can't help himself. See, every time he goes to the A&P, he buys chocolate chip cookies and stuff. You know, he just can't help. He's just driven by total forces beyond which he has no control. He's got the, you know, just terrible like a guy that's got the bourbon monkey on his back, and he just can't stop, you know. So he's laying there on a couch, and uh, the doctor says, well, will you please go back over then again? What uh, we would I'd like to start, remember last week we were saying how you hate your mother. Now, uh, if we can start there, we'll uh, we begin, maybe we'll get to the point. He's been there for nine years, you see, on the couch, and he's laying there. And he's trying to get to, the, to that moment of truth that they call in the psychological world the aha moment. You've heard of the aha experience, yes. That's the moment he says, aha, it was at that point <laughs> that it all started to unravel. Well, he's laying there, see, and he says, he's trying to, he's, yeah, I'll tell you, doctor, I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. I'm just, please, would you please pass the fake Newtons? I'm sorry, guys. I just, you know, I eat 17 pounds of cookies a day, and I don't know what to do about it. And he's laying out of, all of a sudden, he says, oh, I know. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. It's green. I remember it's green. It's a cookie. Oh, it's the cookie monster. Yes, I just wonder how many kids have been uh, turned into cookie freaks by watching the cookie monster. And it's subliminal, of course. You know, the cookie monster, all he ever says is cookie. didn't say anything else. He didn't. And he's fat. You notice that. He's big and round. He's just cookie. And uh, they shove a chocolate chip cookie down in his beak. 
of course, the cookie monster, it's hard to tell what kind of a creature it is. Uh, the cookie monster does not eat dinner. He, one feeds the cookie monster. He is fed. And uh, <laughs> you've seen this. Uh, oh, well, let's get on. We have so many, so many commercials here. That's one thing you learn about kid shows. You know, they really do commercials. Let's see what we got here. Oh, boy. Well, this is uh, You know, I'll tell you, uh, uh, one of the funniest things I ever saw in a television studio happened one time when a friend of mine who did a kid show, and uh, he really hated television. <laughs> he really hated it. And, and uh, you know, once in a while, you, you, you run into somebody in the in a, any one of the media, like even even legitimate stage actors, for example, they hate the theater. I knew, I knew a stage actor who, you know, a really, really good actor who could not stand the theater. Uh, with him, it was simply a job, you know. <laughs> he went there and he did his thing, and he did it very well. He won prizes, but man, when it came to getting up there and giving speeches about how wonderful it was, there was no way. This is a bunch of creeps, is what he used to say all the time. A bunch of creeps. Well, uh, he was a very good Hamlet, too, and still is. So you can see why he was torn there. You know, when you're when you're a very good Hamlet and you hate the theater, you've got problems. Bunch of creeps. He'd come back and he had this skull, you know, and, and uh, I, he kept it on his mantelpiece. And I said, whose skull is that? Uh, had an elegant name like Porterfield. And all, all guys in the theater have names like that, see. Porterfield Wingate. And I said, uh, Porterfield, whose skull is that? He says, don't ask. And I said, well, I am going to ask Porterfield Wingate, whose skull is that? He says, I'm glad you asked. And I said, all right, lay it on me. Whose skull is that? Is that Yorick's? He says, Yorick, my foot. And I said, well, whose was it? He says, my first damn agent. That's who. I said, how did you get manage to get his skull? Usually it's the other way around. The agent gets the actor's skull. <laughs> he says, well, caught him on a dark night back at a Schubert theater. I caught the guy with a sharp blow on the back of the neck. And I said, gee, that's interesting, Porter Wingate. Uh, have they interviewed you in the Times about your life in the theater? Numbskulls? He says, they would never interview somebody who tells the truth. I says, you mean you don't like the theater? He says, a bunch of creeps. And we sat and played Pinochle that night. So being in the theater, you know, from time to time myself, I can uh, say that there are creeps, there are finks, there are uh, slobs, uh, there are a few good guys. There's a whole crowd of mediocrities. And, you know, it's like any other business. You use car business, you know, six of one happens the other. But some of the most exotic people I've ever known in all of showbiz are guys who work kid shows because they're isolated. A kid show performer never gets reviewed. Clive Barnes will not review the Cookie Monster. And, uh... You know, the guy that plays the Cookie Monster could be dedicated to creating that character, which is an unforgettable character, but he does not get a review. No way. He will not star. You know, can't you just see Marquis, new play, Alfred Miller, you know, Albert Miller, new play, starring Cookie Monster, entitled Fig Newtons Forever? No way, you know. <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's, a, it's a thankless task. And this buddy of mine, who are a very elegant man, Oh, truly elegant, uh, really elegant person. He, in fact, he was the only guy I've ever known who seriously wore morning trousers and a morning coat. 
Now, why he did this, I do not know, but he did. <laughs> and you'd go over to this guy's house. You've ever seen people that actually live like guys you see in, in the, you know, bad 1930s movies? Uh, maybe that's where they got it. I don't know, watching late television. And uh, he, he parroted himself after David Niven uh, with a touch of uh, the late Clifton Webb. Do you remember Clifton Webb? And uh, he used to like to think of himself as that character that Clifton Webb always played. Who did Clifton Webb play? He played a whole series. Mr. Who? Come on, remember? And, and uh, he, he was an elegant bachelor. And uh, he, he was always battling with kids in this series. Mr. Who? Now, why do I know all this stuff about movies? When I am not a movie buff, I am just a victim like everybody else. You know, deluge with mediocrity all my life. <laughs> who was Mr. Who? All right, I'll give you a clue. The character that he was, his name, and you know, the character's name, uh, was also the name of a model of the Plymouth automobile. Plymouth, yeah. Now, his name was not Mr. Duster. I'll give you that. For starters, right away. What was his name in that character? You, you, you can't remember the name of the guy? Well, I'm not going to tell you that. You, uh, you'll just have to look that up. And he made about four or five big, successful movies. You remember Clifton Webb, don't you? All right. Uh, I'll bet you'd be surprised to know that Clifton Webb, usually everyone thought of him as some kind of an elegant Englishman or something. Very elegant. No, you'll never, you'll never guess where Clifton Webb is from. No way. Boston. Huh? Fort Wayne, Indiana. Okay? So you guys who think you know what an Indiana person is like, everybody thinks an Indiana is going to Herb Schreiner type, you know, walking around kicking pumpkins, you know, saying things like, oh, shucks. Well, uh, some of the more elegant people in this world have come from Indiana, among them Clifton Webb. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, you can't ignore uh, Ezra Pound was also from the same town. That'll throw you. Fort Wayne. You laugh at Fort Wayne. Well, Ezra Pond did not come from Darien, you slob. <laughs> but uh, Clifton Webb, he played this character, and, and this character was Mr. He never had a first name. He was just called Mr. Something. And uh, he played three or four of these uh, uh, roles. And he was really successful at them. And... Uh, the opening scene, he was like the opposite of uh, of Dr. Spock. He was he came into this household. That was the opening uh, film. Came into this household, and there was a bunch of real wild, screaming, nutty kids. Real mean, rotten kids. And Mr. Blank came into this household, and within 30 seconds, had them eating out of his hand like squirrels, eating peanuts in spring. Tougher than the hell out of <laughs> And he would, he'd use these real sardonic, cutting remarks. Cut the kids down, you know, make them at a cold floor. See the breakfast table. He'd say, one would expect that of, a, of an animal like you. And the kid, what, what, you know? <laughs> uh, who was it? What was the name of the character? I don't know why my, my friends are so uh, lacking in culture. I really don't. But uh, nevertheless, my friend was very much like a combination of Clifton Webb 
a little dash of David Niven, but much younger. But he was patterning himself after these gentlemen. And uh, he, he did such things at the age of 22. Have you ever known a guy at the age of 22 who walked around wearing a Homburg hat? That's enough to run. you want to make you kill him. He wore a Homburg hat, and he more than that, listen to this one, he wore a pearl gray doe-skin vest with pearl buttons. And he always wore these uh, shirts that had detachable collars. Now, that takes guts. He wore detachable collars. <laughs> I have never known anybody that wore these things. And he wore blue shirts, elegant blue shirts, real light blue, with white, stiff collars. And he wore a foulard tie, one of these big uh, ties that sort of fluff out like that. And he always looked like he was vaguely dressed up either for a funeral or a wedding. It's hard to tell. And he wore a black Homburg hat. And uh, he wore these, he, these elegantly cut striped pants. And uh, I, I hate to say this, I think he even wore a cutaway coat. It just, he, if he didn't, he, he, he radiated cutaway, cutaway coat. He radiated it. And uh, well, he did such things as uh, he had elegant diction. So one day we went into a, a department store. And he also was uh, basically subversive. Now this guy, this guy was working. He was he was a radio and television type. So he did he was an announcer, an elegant voice, and uh, but he had the perfect diction, and uh, he had a he had a mustache that looked a little like a Clifton Webb's mustache. He patterned, he patterned himself on Clifton Webb, and so on this one day we went into a department store, and it was raining out, and you know there's a typical girl working behind the counter there. And she comes up to us, and, and it's in the raincoat division, where, where they had full raincoats and umbrellas and all that. It's raining out. And so my friend says, uh, may I see a bumper shirt, please? And uh, she says, what? You know, what? He says, uh, I would like to look at bumper shoots. And she says, uh, what? And, he says, and again, he says, uh, uh, you, of course, carry bumper shoots. At which point she says, uh, uh, Miss Kenley! Yeah, she didn't know what the hell a bumper shoot was. And over came this tall, skinny dame. You know, it looked like she was uh, made out of copper wire or something. And she comes she come walking over and she says, What do you want? And uh, this uh, girl says, uh, hey, so You want something? At which point my friend says, uh, Yes, uh, I'm looking for something uh, in the nature of a bumper shoot. And she says, You mean an umbrella? He says, yes, uh, uh, if you care to call him that, yes, uh, shoot. And she says, what kind do you want? You want a folding one? And uh, he sort of drew himself up, and he says, I'm looking for something with a short sword in the handle. Well, he said it with such, such authority. She, she just said it. Stood there for she says, a what? He says, I'm looking for a bumper shoot with a short sword in the handle, please. And he looks so official. You know, it's like arguing with Henry Kissinger. You know, you just say, oh, look at a Google bird here. You know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so she went and got a floor walker, at which point the floor walker came over. And he had a rose and the lapel and the whole work, see? And he says, uh, yes, uh, is there anything I can do for you? And boy, you know, my friend is not going to be put down by any floor walker. In fact, he was sort of a concussence 
of Floor Walker himself. I mean, he could have been one of the greatest floor walkers or butlers in the history of the world. So he turns to the guy and he says, I have no, I really have no idea why I'm having so much difficulty getting my ideas across to the help here. I'm merely looking for a bumper shoot with a short sword in the handle, perhaps a dirk. The guy says, you mean a sword in the handle? My friend says, yes. It's well, I think you'll find that down at the sporting goods store. We don't carry no swords here. And uh, at which point my friend just said, sniffed. Well, I thought this was a department store for the discriminating. And we both let the hat play it absolutely straight. See, I, I, uh, he, he, he had such a way about him that you just couldn't uh, crack up and laugh. So we both stalked out in dudgeon. In a high dudgeon, in fact. I, I uh, personally am not too good at stalking out. But he could stalk, I'm telling you. So we went out, and about an hour later, he pulled another one. It's one of these, you know, remember, he's an elegant man. He wears these elegant coats. In fact, he had a top coat that had a velvet collar. Have you seen the kind with the tweed, like, with a velvet collar? Well, he, he always wore a velvet collar. And he always was carrying a thing hanging over his arm. It was like a short umbrella or a, or a stick or something. He's really elegant. And this, they had this dark Homburg hat. So we go into the Purple Cow. You know, a man in the, going into the Purple Cow, uh, right away you're giving up some dignity right there. Uh, going to eat in a place called the Purple Cow, right? Uh, have you ever seen the Purple Cow? You have not. Well, this is a chain that is very big in the Midwest. And uh, they have a slogan on the wall that says, uh, a purple cow. I hope to never see one. Uh, you've see, you heard that the famous bad, uh, you don't know that. Uh, all right. So we will not burden you with that. That's an American uh, literaryism by a man, another Indianan, by the way, named Burgess Gillette, who invented this uh, bad piece of doggerel that deals with a purple cow. Now, we go into the Purple Cow, and they had a thing in the Purple Cow, and that was this. You got as much coffee as you wanted. You know, the bottomless cup type concept? And so the minute you would order a, uh, a cup of coffee, you'd drink the coffee, and the girl would come over and pour another cup of coffee. And their big dish at the Purple Cow was buttermilk pancakes. You know these little ones? Well, on this particular day, my elegant friend, this place is crowded, He's sitting there, and uh, he orders buttermilk pancakes, and he's ordering the the, uh, the coffee. And the coffee comes, and uh, he eats a couple of buttermilk pancakes very fastidiously with a with a fork and the pinky up. He eats a couple of the buttermilk pancakes. Has about ten of them on the plate, you know, and they're all laying there in a little stack. And very carefully, then he turns to me and he says, "Well, great Scott, do you know what time it is? Do you realize that we're we're ten minutes late already?" Great Scott. And he says this so everyone can hear him. And uh, at that point, and this was a U-shaped counter. These people are facing us. At which point, then, he takes the buttermilk pancakes one by one and rolls them up and makes them into tiny cigars and puts them into the breast pocket of his elegant, uh, <laughs> his elegant top coat. <laughs> Never cracked a smile. And uh, he, he puts the... And, and like a little roll of cigars. Instead of that, they were a little roll of buttermilk pancakes. And, of course, everybody's face drops. And, and but we walk over to the counter, 
And he says, uh, you don't mind if I pick up your check? He says, after all, what the hell, you can't take it with you. And I said, fine. And he paid for my pancakes. And he said to the girl behind the counter, he said, but you'll notice I'm taking my pancakes with me. Uh, I am uh, a little short of time. And she just said, looked at him with a dumb, glazed look, and we laughed. All right, he was that kind of guy. You see the kind of man he was. Very elegant. By some trick of fate, this creature of true elegance, and, and I say that fate is that way so often. It, it, it hurls us into areas we should never be hurled into. Uh, for example, I have known professional football players, Al, with the soul of a poet. I have known poets with the soul of a professional wrestler. They should not have been poets. But if they should have been wrestling, uh, you know, in the felt forum. Uh, so fate is like this. It just hurls people. Well, my elegant friend, of all things that have, would have happened, he should have been, for example, he should have been Eric Severide. He had, was that, you know, he's that kind of intelligence. He should have been giving commentary on the news. And he would have done it with great style. In the considering the Middle East situation tonight, it has come to my attention and it has crossed these editorial desks, that the following, you know, he could have done this with such a plum. Because he wore a Hamburg hat. He was a man of great style and grace. But what happened to him? He did a thing every Saturday morning for two hours, a kid show. And you want to know what it was called? It was called The Crocodile and His Friends. Okay. Now, he wasn't even the crocodile. That's what made it sad. If he was the crocodile, that would have been all right. But uh, he was the friend of the crocodile, the friend. And the crocodile was a great big plastic puppet. Well, it's a dog like this. It was a crocodile. And they'd say, hello, how are you? And <laughs> it was kind of a good thing. <laughs> quack, 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 quack. He'd go, and he was always snapping. You know how crocodiles are. And my friend would come in with, yeah, bop, bop, his, his big old beak would go. And, and at the end of every crocodile joke, my friend would feed him a hamburger. Now, the reason he ate a hamburger was because they were sponsored by Big Boy Hamburgers at the time. You know, this is, can you imagine anything more humiliating for a man of good taste to be feeding Big Boy Hamburgers to a rubber crocodile every Saturday morning with the whole world looking on? Well, this is what he had to do. Well, they used to have little guests on the show. He'd talk to the crocodile. And now, why he was compelled to wear this costume, I do not know. He was compelled to wear, by the uh, producers of this fiasco, he was compelled to wear a costume that looked a little bit like Prince Valiant. It was kind of uh, medieval, you know? And they had a wig on him that was a kind of a wig, you know, that Prince Valiant wears his hair, cut off like a football helmet-like. And uh, he would come out with these tights and a buskin, and he had these silver pants and long, long stockings and shoes with buckles. And he was, he was called his friend. And <laughs> he talked to the dead crocodile. And, of course, the crocodile had other friends. He had a, a hippopotamus, you know, named Fatty, of course. And uh, before we get to the Dana Maw, we have another commercial. I'm sure you'll love it.